Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. global supply chain, that is the long process by which your shoes and your laptop were manufactured, shipped around the world, and eventually made their way to you. Before the pandemic, for most of us, it's something we really didn't think too much about. But then, we had to. Welcome to KCBS In Depth, I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, we're going to be taking a closer look at the finely tuned global system that we rely on to keep our store shelves stocked and packages delivered on time. And we'll also be hearing why the events of the last two years have thrown that whole system out of whack. Bringing us that story, we're going to welcome on now Wall Street Journal technology columnist Christopher Mims, who outlines it all in his new book called Arriving Today. Christopher Mims, uh, welcome on to KCBS In Depth. Thank you so much for having me. So I think before the pandemic, of course, we all knew in general terms that we live in a globalized world. Uh, and of course, we knew that the things that we buy are coming from all over the place. But over the past two years, as the global supply chain has hit one snag after another, we've really been getting a collective crash course in just how it is that this all works. You know, whether you've had to wait to buy a new bike or whether your grocery store has been sold out of toilet paper or, you know, more recently, uh, COVID-19 test kits. Uh, We've been learning a lot about how bottlenecks at one link in the chain or another can really cause huge problems all down the line. So, uh, Christopher Mims, uh, we are all paying attention right now. What should we be learning about this global system? What is the message of the past two years? I think the message of the past few years is that uh, supply chains and manufacturing have become one and the same, and they have both become far more complicated than they ever were uh, in the past. And, And to unpack that a bit, what I mean is that, you know, in the old days, you know, if you're Henry Ford, you're building a factory, you know, uh, materials and energy, steel, rubber, electricity, fuel go in one end of the factory and out the other end comes, you know, a Model T. But manufacturing doesn't work that way anymore. Like if you look at a cell phone, for example, or even something that seems mundane like a COVID test kit, there could be dozens or hundreds of components in there. Each of those components has its own supply chains. And, you know, those pieces might be manufactured in one country and then shipped thousands of miles away to be incorporated into another sub-assembly or into a final assembly. And so the result is that whatever you're talking about, you know, the number of embodied miles inside an object uh, 
these days it, it's just ridiculous. It's tens of thousands of miles, even if it's a relatively simple thing, unless of course it's just a turnip that you bought at your local um, farmer's market. Mm. That means, however, uh, that those supply chains are more vulnerable because though you would think that, oh, okay, well, maybe this means, you know, if a thing can be manufactured anywhere and the supply chains are global, there must be very, there must be a lot of providers for any one item. Actually, what's happened is there's just been a lot of consolidation. So if you want uh, a microchip, an advanced microchip, you know, the odds are, you know, 70, 80% that that came from Taiwan. If you want that advanced microchip uh, package, which means put into like the little plastic thing that it goes in before it goes onto a, the circuit board and, and a gadget, uh, you know, the odds are 80 or 90% that it had to be packaged in Malaysia. Um, and you see this over and over again, you know, things that we think there should be enough of, you know, it turns out some critical part of them is made in one place, maybe in China. And, you know, if that one factory or that handful of factories or that city or the ports that get those goods out of that country are shut down, then that link in the supply chain is severed. And so we have longer supply chains than ever that are more consolidated than ever and are therefore more vulnerable to disruption than ever. And all of this has happened because in good times, you know, all of this consolidation and all of this cheap shipping makes manufacturing objects as cheap as possible. And that's been the drive. How do we cut costs? How do we you know, trim the fat? How do we make, you know, just in time manufacturing and delivery work? But in a, in a difficult time, like during a global pandemic or when any other type of disaster happens, like a weather disaster, you know, extreme weather event or a political disaster or what just happened in Tonga, um, then, you know, d disaster strikes and suddenly people can't get enough of something that they didn't even know uh, was critical to their daily lives. So perfect example, microchip shortage means you can't buy that new truck that you wanted. I mean, who would have thought? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm kind of um, alluding to when I talk about this crash course that we're all getting is we're, we're learning that these things that we took for granted are really interconnected in ways that uh, a lot of us never considered. A friend of mine who's really into bikes has had to learn an awful lot about why his, it's been so hard to buy a bike. He's been learning about uh, where the bikes come from, the, the factories in Taiwan and elsewhere and uh, shipping containers and how that's uh, snarled up at various ports. So uh, we've all been learning a lot about the system. And uh, just to put it into perspective, uh, once again, speaking with Wall Street Journal technology columnist Christopher Mims, uh, once again, in your book, you refer to this global system as among the most complicated endeavors in human history. So uh, we really are talking about something that has achieved a fantastic level of complexity. Yeah. I mean, if you talk about, you know, let's take a smartphone, for example, it's got 300 odd components in it. Every single one of those components uh, for final assembly has to arrive, you know, in the same factory at about the same time. That's the definition of just in time manufacturing. You don't have a ton of extra inventory sitting on shelves because that's just that's that's burning money. Um, even mundane objects will go on. You know, I traced the journey of a USB charger in my book. And the reason I did it is it's kind of like the modern day t-shirt. It's like, it, it, it's an electronic gadget, but it's as simple as it gets and it can be manufactured almost anywhere. You know, it's going to go on a 14,000 mile journey. That's just once it's been manufactured. 
Uh, and along the way, you know, it's going to travel, uh, it's going to get into a shipping container, it's going to go onto a barge that goes down a river, it gets onto into a port, and then gets onto a giant um, container ship, it crosses the ocean, it goes into another port, which may be highly automated, there's tons of robots that sort it out. Uh, you know, then it goes on to a truck to the Inland Empire where it's unloaded. Then it goes to a Amazon fulfillment center where a fantastical amount of complexity kicks in. And that's just the journey to basically get it to the West Coast and, and, and doesn't even encompass what all the steps that happen next to get it singulated, as they say in the industry, into the right cardboard box that gets delivered to your front door. So that entire journey you know, it involves hundreds of people, dozens of touches by human beings, you know, a, 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 a really an unprecedented amount of automation and robotics and software to optimize that journey so that that shipping cost is as low as possible. That's why you can get, you know, quote unquote, free shipping. Shipping. We all, we know it, we all know it's baked into the cost of the item, but that's why that shipping for that is so inexpensive, even though it literally traveled around the world. All right, and we're going to dig into some of that complexity more in just a second. Real quick, for anybody just joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're speaking with Wall Street Journal technology columnist Christopher Mims, whose new book, Arriving Today, tells the story of our massively complicated global supply chain, how it works, and why so often recently, it has not. So uh, let's actually lean into that angle now. Uh, what exactly has been going wrong for the past two years? Uh, I'm sure that for every item that we've been coming up short on, there is a different story to tell. You mentioned automobiles and how the shortage of chips have created problems there. But uh, you also suggest in the book that there are some major overarching themes that have affected just about everything in the supply chain. So let's start there. What are some of the big reasons that this have, these have been uh, two very difficult years? The biggest reason of all is that within about a month after uh, the pandemic really came into force in the U.S. and lockdowns happened, Americans went on a I would say probably an unprecedented buying spree. So all of the money that used to get channeled into going out and vacations and entertainment and hospitality, it just got channeled into goods. So people were just like, oh, you know, if I'm going to entertain at home, like I need some outdoor furniture or I need a webcam because I'm working from home or I need a laptop so my kid can study. Um, you know, so, so an additional hundreds of billions of dollars of goods were ordered online or purchased from retailers. And all of that needed to flow through global supply chains to get to us. Those supply chains are designed to um, scale up and, and, and scale down in a seasonal manner. I mean, obviously, there's peak season when people are buying goods for the holidays and retailers are ordering, you know, th typically three to six months ahead of the holidays to be ready for that. But, you know, this happened you know, starting in March of 2020. So nowhere near peak. You, you, during the time that's usually a doldrums for global shipping. And the system, it's just so big that it's very, very hard to make it any bigger quickly. And yet we had this profound shift to people buying more stuff. And then also people buying more of certain types of stuff like the toilet paper uh, shortage is a classic example. It wasn't that there wasn't enough, you know, pulp to be made into toilet paper. It was that so much of that 
particular supply chain was geared toward creating these giant rolls of toilet paper for institutions. So, you know, just to be basic about it, people weren't using toilet paper at their places of work and restaurants and everywhere else anymore. They wanted to buy it at home. Well, that manufacturing supply chain had to be rerouted to create uh, the kind of toilet paper that people buy in the store and the kind that they want to take home, you know, maybe it's softer or whatever. So that's a great example of how uh, just the shift in our buying habits uh, really caught supply chains and manufacturers flat footed. Yeah, so this is a system that is really geared towards peak efficiency at every level. And because of that, you know, something going wrong in one part of the system means 10 other things are going to go wrong somewhere else in the system. And we saw a lot of examples of that at the ports throughout the world. Uh, You did a fair amount of reporting yourself at the Port of Los Angeles, how their operation works with the loading and unloading of uh, shipping containers. Tell us a little bit about how this incredible glut of consumer spending has been throwing off those operations. So ports, like all the other links in the supply chain, are are, are highly optimized for, you know, the conditions that uh, port operators expect. Um, as soon as the uh, their sort of stated operating volume gets exceeded, what happens is, you know, it's just like a traffic jam on LA's highways. Um, congestion begets more congestion. So, you know, Gene Soroka, like head of the Port of L.A., uh, you know, he said in the last, I don't know, three, four five months, every month they are moving close to a million containers off of ships, you know, through the port. And that means every month they are matching or beating their record in all previous months for the entire existence of the port for all the you know century that it's been around. So, uh, you know, even when they're working all out, uh, all kinds of problems start to happen where, you know, if a ship is waiting, then, uh, you know, that's going to delay all its arrival at all its subsequent ports of call. Um, if ports fill up, uh, if, the, if the actual individual terminals in the ports fill up, uh, they have so many containers sitting on the concrete that it makes it difficult to sort those containers and get the right container out of or into the port at the right time. So the system, the more that goods that we try to shove through it starts to slow down. And then on top of that, you're having issues like, you know, obviously workers calling out sick because of coronavirus. That doesn't help either. Yeah, I wanted to discuss that as well. Uh, Obviously, we've been hearing a lot about labor shortages over the past year or so. How has that been playing into the challenges in the global supply chain? That varies a lot by uh, which part of the supply chain you're talking about. But but to take one that I think is underappreciated, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, companies actually wound down their orders. They thought that what we were heading into was, you know, the... Uh, Uh, another giant recession like we had in 2008 and 2009. And so companies were like, okay, let's pull back all of our orders. That actually hit, uh, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of small trucking companies and small trucking owner operators, which moved the bulk of uh, 
freight by truck in the U.S. It's not big companies. It's not consolidated. It's a super fragmented industry. It's mostly these independent truck drivers that own their own trucks or small companies that have, you know, less than a dozen trucks. Mm -hmm. So when all of those companies pulled back, as often happens in the trucking industry, a bunch of those small owner operators and small trucking companies actually went bankrupt, exited the industry. And so right at the beginning of the pandemic, America's, uh, you know, net capacity of long haul trucking took a hit. But then within a couple of months, of course, the opposite of what everyone expected happened, you know, people started spending like crazy and more and more trucks than ever were needed, except that suddenly they weren't available because so many of those little trucking companies had gone under. Um, you know, on top of that, trucking in particular has a real problem with an aging workforce. Tons of people are retiring out of trucking. You know, we can talk about the reasons for that. But all across the supply chain, lots of these jobs, not all of them, but lots of these jobs are punishing and difficult. And people have been asked to do them in ways that are not physically or mentally uh, sustainable for a long time. And so they have you know, high turnover, whether it's trucking or working in warehouses or in certain other areas of the supply chain, that high turnover um, and, the, and the sort of low quality of life experienced by people working in those industries has only exacerbated this labor shortage because now workers have choices, right? So they can decide, you know, well, I'm going to go make more money doing something else. I, you know, you can take this job and shove it basically. Speaking with again to Wall Street Journal technology columnist Christopher Mims, whose new book is arriving today. And uh, just a little bit more background on the reporting that went into this book. You were actually in Vietnam reporting on one node in that global supply network just before the pandemic broke out. And you continued your reporting following around different people, different uh, corporations that make this uh, make this global supply network happen. And that's really positioned you well to have a first row seat, a front row seat of this crazy story that's played out over these two years and all of these various disruptions. And I guess that leads to the question that probably a lot of our listeners have right now. You know, if this is a story about uh, a demand shock and uh, a pandemic that's throwing a lot of people out of work and just all these like little ripple effects how long until that clears itself out and we get back to some kind of equilibrium? When can we expect things to be back to normal? That's a great question. You know, long no pause. One, yeah, <laughs> it's a great question. And, and, and no one has a really good answer. Um, you know, it, when I talk to, uh, you know, the academics who have studied this thing for a long time. I mean, I mean, they, their, their most basic answer is, look, you know, people can't be ordering, you know, record numbers of uh, laptops and cars and everything else forever. You know, what goes up must come down, you know, demand goes up and it goes down. You have recessions, you just have normal economic cycles. That's probably the most surefire way to get this entire system to normalize again is just some kind of uh, normal economic cycle or macroeconomic shock, uh, like the Fed raising interest rates, which they're, you know, have signaled they're going to do, which just reduces consumption. Um, that said, in the long term, you know, companies are doing all kinds of things to try and make their supply chains more resilient. I mean, Nike is a great example. They've had two quarters in a row where they've really suffered because they cannot manufacture and ship enough shoes. 
And so they're kind of on the defensive now and they're like, well, here's how we're trying to fix our supply chains so that this doesn't happen again. Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, speaking with Wall Street Journal technology columnist Christopher Mims, whose new book is arriving today, and it's shedding some light on the bottlenecks and breakdowns that have been gumming up the works of the global supply chain over the past two years. One item that uh, I definitely want to include in this conversation is, because it's been causing so many headaches for folks out there, is the COVID-19 test kits. We've been hearing over and over again about the importance of testing over the past many months, but uh, when this latest surge broke, it has been exceedingly difficult for folks to get their hands on one of these. What's been the problem there? Why, Why has it been so difficult to ramp up production of these kits? I mean, the COVID test kit issue, uh, it, it just shows you how uh, hard it is to steer a ship as big as the supply chain and the manufacturing uh, wherewithal required to create enough tests for everybody in America. I mean, you know, they're talking about we're going to hand out you know, hundreds of millions of these uh, tests. You can't just make that overnight. So I think Part of this is a testament to how fast the pandemic has moved and how fast we've had to evolve our response to it. So I think that, you know, we're in a place now where, uh, you know, Omicron seems to be uh, less harmful. And so now the idea is, okay, we're going to try to return to normal life. So we need tests. But, you know, a few months ago when we needed to be ramping up production of those tests, we weren't necessarily thinking along those lines, you know, either Omicron wasn't here yet or it was here and nobody knew how it was going to play out. So in a way, the fact that we can even propose to make this many test kits uh, is kind of a miracle of modern supply chains. So sometimes I think when people complain about, Oh, I can't get this or that, or there's a shortage of this or that. I just think to myself like, yeah, because everybody wants it and there are 320 plus million of us and we have more spending power combined than, you know, many other countries combined. Uh, so these things don't, supply chains don't just like snap and reform in an instant. So in some ways, I think we have seen them be remarkably resilient. It's just that we kind of underestimate, I think, the degree to which demand for goods has shifted so quickly uh, whatever those goods are, whether it's test kits or, you know, laptops for our kids to do uh, homeschool. You know, the pandemic is unprecedented in the way that it has reshaped demand at such a scale so quickly. You know, I think that that point actually sets me up really well for one of the big questions that I had for you after reading your book, which is essentially how should we feel about this global supply system that we've all constructed here? 
Uh, I mean, on the one hand, as you've been pointing out, there are some big problems with this. Uh, there's been the hiccups over the past two years. There's the the fact that workers in many portions of this system, their jobs have been getting worse and worse and grindier and grindier because of this quest for peak efficiency. Uh, we haven't really gotten into it too much, but obviously there's the environmental concerns. But on the other hand it can achieve some incredible things, uh, getting all these goods shipped around the world at increasingly low prices. And uh, consumerism gets a bad rap. But, you know, when we're talking about something like COVID-19 test kits, getting millions and millions of them out there, that is a triumph in its own right and a matter of life and death for many. So, yeah, again, just taking it all together, how should we feel about this thing? Yeah, I mean, I hope, you know, when people read my book that they come away with, you know, first a feeling of awe that this system is so big and so complicated and yet it works. And then hopefully the second thing they'll feel is gratitude because look around you right now, you know, 80, 90% of everything around you came to you uh, on a ship and then on a truck. Uh, and 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 so many people were involved in that process, and we shouldn't take it for granted. It's a miracle. But then the last thing I think that people should feel, especially when they read some parts of the book, um, is some degree of horror that in order to achieve this level of efficiency, um, you know, some companies really are, and some industries really are pushing people to their limit and beyond. And 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 so. You know, finally, from a purely self-interested perspective, there should be a certain amount of worry. Like, well, you know, if we don't fix these systems, if we don't empower uh, the people who work in these industries uh, so that they can create a more sustainable workplace for themselves, the rate of turnover and burnout in these industries could threaten, uh, you know, the 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 overall efficiency of that system and lead to more supply chain bottlenecks and crises in the future of even more critical goods. Yeah, and uh, hanging over all of this is the question of automation. Uh, You document throughout the book a number of ways that automation has been getting more sophisticated throughout the global supply chain, whether we're talking about loading and unloading shipping containers or whether we're talking about organizing warehouses, automation is playing a bigger and bigger role And there's a lot of concern about what impacts that will have on workers. But uh, you suggest in the book that the impact is not quite so clear cut. There's some ways in which it has some perhaps uh, surprising impacts. So I know that there's a lot of threads to the automation story, but perhaps uh, just uh, pick one to close us out and give us some sense of where this all could be headed next. Well, I think... For example, uh, people talk about self-driving trucks. Oh, it's going to end truck drivers, uh, and it threatens that whole industry. Um, you know, that's a classic example of where automation, you know, it doesn't take over jobs. It takes over tasks. So more, once we do start getting self-driving trucks on the road, and by the way, the you know, the first test ever did happen in Arizona of a fully self-driving truck driving completely autonomously to deliver freight. They did it in the dead of night. I think they were trying to keep it secret. So it is here, it is coming, Um, but that will change the nature of trucking. You will still need truck drivers because you'll still need them to navigate the parts of the journey that the automation just isn't safe to navigate on its own. It may mean, you know, better working conditions, ironically, for those truck drivers. So 
but that's up to us, right? And it's up to the people who make those decisions about how those workers are managed. So automation, it doesn't have to be, you know, this dire, this bad thing. It can lead to higher wages and better working conditions. But we have to be paying attention because it, it, it's not automatic. It doesn't automatically go one way or the other to making people's lives better or worse. It's really up to us. Yeah. So a massive, enormously complicated system that we all have a role to play in. And uh, we have been hearing about that system one last time from Wall Street Journal technology columnist Christopher Mims. His new book is arriving today. Christopher Mims, very interesting conversation. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Benconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. Listening to KCBS in depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit KCBSRadio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 